Hear the word of the Lord. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. Now these curtains make up the walls of the inside of the tabernacle. It's probably about 60 feet by 30 foot uh, interior of this tent. And so it's now going to describe how those curtains that made that wall, uh, how they were made. This is what it says. He coupled five curtains to one another. And the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost uh, curtain of the second set. He made 50 loops on the one curtain, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another, and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with clasps, so the tabernacle was a single whole. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Now, what this is basically describing, now this is a portable tent. This next paragraph is the rain fly over the tent. So you have the, the curtains that go around that make the walls on the inside, and then there's a protective tent that goes over the top. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. The 11 curtains were uh, the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost uh, curtain of the one set and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single whole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. So now this next paragraph describes the tent poles. If you might think we're constructing a tent, here comes the tent poles. Then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus, 20 frames for the south side. And he made 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, he made 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, uh, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for, cor for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they were sep uh, separate beneath but joined at the top. At uh, the first ring, he made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the uh, one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle of the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from the ends, from end to end, halfway up the frames. And he overlaid the frames with gold and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, which cherubim skillfully worked into it. He made it. 
And for it, he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold. And he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework and its five pillars with their hooks. He overlaid their capitals and their fillets were of gold, but their five bases were of bronze. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for every page of your holy word. And uh, we pray that you would instruct us now with these uh, strange details that um, you would teach us by your Holy Spirit and apply these words into our life now, into our community, into our world. And so we need you to, to teach us and we open our hearts to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have to say, there is something refreshing about this passage that I just read. And the reason it's refreshing is because it, it seems totally irrelevant to anything that's going on in our lives right now. And, uh, you know, there's so much happening in our world now that, that feels so incredibly important. COVID, the election, racial tensions. A culture war between the left and the right. And we all feel so much anxiety because in each of these things, it feels like there is so much at stake in them. And so you might hear me read a passage like this and think, why don't we talk about something more relevant as a church than this tent that was made 3,000 years ago in the wilderness in Sinai and with all these instructions about the hooks. And, and uh, it's not only boring, uh, but we have things that are so much more important to talk about than this. And my question for you is, do we have something more important to talk about than this? This passage is about the creator of heaven and earth coming to dwell among human beings. Is there something more important than that? And it strikes me, we don't have a chapter in the Bible about how to solve the racial problems in America we don't have a chapter in the Bible how to, you know, stop the radical left from shaping our culture. We don't have chapters on that. We do have a chapter on how to build a tent in the Middle East in the second millennium B.C. It doesn't mean that these cultural questions are, are not important. It means that these strange instructions about building a tent are more important. And you might wonder, how could that be more important? Well, um, what this passage does, it's an alien text to our culture. It's outside of our culture. And it actually pulls us out of all the anxiety of everything that we're facing right now and gives us fresh eyes to understand God and his world and to tell us what are the most important things. What is the worldview? What is the main lens that we should be using as Christians as we enter back into all those pressing cultural issues right now? What is the worldview? And so this, question, this passage answers the most fundamental questions that we believe in as Christians. And there are three of them that we're going to answer this morning. And this is what they are. What is the meaning of the world? What is the problem with the world? And what is the solution for the world? You couldn't have more three, three more fundamental basic questions than what is the meaning of the world, what is the problem with the world, and what is the solution? 
And so this passage is giving us as a worldview. And so I'm not going to go through line by line through this passage. I'm going to draw out a few of the important verses from this passage and step back and answer these kind of bigger, broader questions about the meaning of the tabernacle for our lives. So three questions this morning. This is what they are. The first is, what is the meaning of the world? So when we go outside and we see the sky and the mountains and the rivers and you look out at the bay and the islands and you know, or on a cool, clear evening when you see the sparkling stars and the strange moon in the sky, and you say, what is this place? Like, where am I? Like, what is this universe that I am in? Well, the tabernacle answers that question for us. And you'll notice that in verse 8 it says, And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, with cherubim skillfully worked. Now the reason that the rectangular curtains that made the walls of the tabernacle were blue and purple and scarlet is because they were supposed to look like the sky. Or as the Bible says, the heavens. And so when you looked at the tabernacle, it was like you were looking at the sky is what it was supposed to mean to us. And the Bible says that the heavens have both the visible heavens to them. The visible heavens are when we look up at the the sky and we see the sun and the moon and the stars and we see what's in the heavens. And then there's also the invisible heavens, which is where God dwells with all of his angels. And you'll notice that uh, the blue curtains had cherubim, which are angelic beings, woven on this blue curtain is to say you're looking into the heavens. And uh, actually the inside of the tabernacle, so you're looking at the walls, inside there were two rooms. One room was called the holy place, and in the holy place there was this uh, lampstand that had seven lights in it. And the word that's used for lamps in there is the same word that's used in Genesis 1 when God set the, the great lights in the heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars. And actually the reason there's seven, there, there was probably because there were seven visible planets in the ancient world. So there's the seven lights in the heavens, and so inside the tabernacle were the seven lights. So the The holy place represents the visible heavens. And then the other room was called the most holy place. And in the most holy place, there were these uh, images of cherubim, these uh, angelic beings. And the, the ark was God's throne, or it was the footstool for his throne. So in the most holy place is where God and his angels dwell. So the two rooms of the tabernacle represent the visible and the invisible heavens. And so when we look out on our world around us and ask, What is this place? Like you and I live in this strange world. What is this place? The tabernacle teaches us you are living in a giant tabernacle. You're living in a giant temple. In the tabernacle, the courtyard of the tabernacle represented the earth. The inside of the tent represented the heavens. So the tabernacle was a symbolic picture of the heavens and the earth. It's a symbolic picture of the universe. You and I are living in a gigantic symbolic temple. Now the question, first question is, well, how does that affect how we live if we think we're living in a gigantic temple? Well, I think the first thing is it fills us with a sense of wonder and beauty. The world we are living in is not a meaning, just meaningless, a big, vast, void space just with atoms in it. You know, uh, many people have... Uh, sociologists have written recently about the effect of the Enlightenment on our 
culture over the last several hundred years, and they've called it disenchantment. We, that that in, the, in the pre-modern world, we saw the universe as like this great cathedral that God had made that was filled with symbolism. It was charged with meaning. And, uh, and now, since the Enlightenment, we've stripped it of all that meaning. And it's just this vast space, and it's just atoms that are moving around in motion. And... Um, but as Christians, we should see the world as a temple that is being prepared for God, by God for him to come and flood it with his glory. And just as the tabernacle was filled with all kinds of symbolism, the creation, too, is filled with all kinds of symbolism. So when you look at the sun, what is the meaning of the sun? The sun fills the world with light. Light is a, is a picture of wisdom, that God himself has filled his world with his wisdom. And light gives life to all of God's living creatures. And God himself is the source of all light. Or you look at the mountains. What's the meaning of a mountain? Mountains are huge, immovable rocks. They just seem unchanging. And like, who could ever move a mountain? God is immovable like a mountain. Or what is water? You know, we all take showers and we clean ourselves. That has symbolic meaning that God is washing us of our sin. He's forgiving us. And when we drink water, it gives life to us. And Jesus says, I too give you living waters that will give you eternal life. Every inch of this world is charged with meaning and declaring to us the glory of who God is. And of course, above all the symbols of God's creation, humans are the most profound they're made after the image of God. And in the ancient world, there were other tabernacles like this. Other gods had portable tents where people would worship in. Except always there was a statue in the middle of that tent. And God's tabernacle does not have a statue because God is invisible. But God, those ancient gods had images. And their images were statues that didn't talk. They didn't hear. They didn't feel. They didn't breathe. They didn't do anything. But God has filled his world temple with his images who are living, breathing, playing, singing, creating, loving, willful, talking animals. You didn't think, you know, you might read fantasy stories about talking animals and you're like, I wish I lived in a world where there are talking animals. You do live in a world. There are seven billion talking animals in this world. You live in a world filled with talking animals. You're just used to it. It's not strange to us. And when we understand that the heavens and the earth are a giant temple, then human beings are billions of priests who are called to prepare this temple into a beautiful dwelling place for God. That is what all human culture is, all politics, all visions of, of, in human enterprise is about. It is a giant house. We are living in a giant house where people are fed and they eat together where people are clothed and loved. It's a house where people uh, work together to make it a lovely place. And when you hear all that and you're like, wow, I live in this symbolic world. There's meaning to the sun and the, and the mountains and to human beings. It sounds also mythological. Yes, you are living in a mythological world. You're living in a giant myth. It's a true myth. I don't mean it's a legend. I don't mean it's false. You are living in the true myth. You're living in a giant, beautiful temple with billions of talking animal priests. You're not living in the meaningless and boring universe of materialist science. You're living in a mythological world where Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, has made all things and is directing all things according to his purposes.
So first, what is the meaning of the world? That's a, wow, who's talking about that? The irrelevance of the passage, I love it. It is a temple that humans are called to prepare so that God might come and live here in his temple, in his house. But many of you hear that and you say, yeah, okay, I'm the, there's a part of me that goes out into the world and I feel, I love that idea of, you know, maybe this afternoon you go on a walk and you see the sky and the trees and this whole new eyes, you know, I'm living in a temple and it fills us with beauty and wonder. But there's also a part of us that feels like the world seems so meaningless. You know, there's so much suffering and there's so much despair and is there any order to it? And so there's, we have a kind of ambivalence about the world. And so that leads to our second question, not just what is the meaning of the world, but second, what is the problem with the world? G.K. Chesterton says this, we have to feel the universe at once as an ogre's castle to be stormed and yet as our own cottage to which we can return at evening. You hear how he says, well, first of all, Chesterton says the world is a house. He sees it that way. But he says it's either an ogre's castle that we need to, like, fight against all the, you know, the, the wrong with it. And it's this comforting place that we love to be a part of. There's, he's talking about that ambivalence. And it's both of these things that it is the mythological temple of talking animal priests where God wants to come dwell here. But the creation has also become the place of gross injustice, selfishness, violence, and sorrow. And so even though we need to know the meaning of the world, we also need to know what's wrong with the world. And the tabernacle answers that question for us as well. So for example, you'll notice uh, when it talks about the curtains that make that inner, the inner rooms, the, their hooks in class were made of gold. Look at verse 13, for example. And he made 50 claps, claps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with, uh, with class. So the tabernacle was a single whole. And actually everything inside the tabernacle was made of gold. You know, the ark and the, and the cherubim and the, the altar of incense and the, 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 the lampstand. So everything's gold. Okay, bear with me while we get through some of these details here. But as you moved outward and you get to the curtain itself that's moving outside of the temple, it, the metals change to silver. So uh, verse 23, the frames for the tabernacle, he made thus. 20 frames for the south side, he made 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames. So on the south side, there are 20 frames. On the north side, there's 20 frames. And their bases were of silver. And then as you move even more outside, you get to the rain fly that we were talking about on the tent. What are the metals that are used on the rain fly? Well, look at verse 18. And he made 50 class of bronze uh, to couple the tent together that it might be a single whole. So as you move outward from the center, the metals of the tabernacle change from gold to silver to bronze. And it says that at the center, as you move toward the center, things are becoming more holy. And uh, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that because of the levels of holiness, it limited access into God's holy presence. So, for example, in the courtyard, the outer courtyard, only ceremonially clean Israelites could come in there. To come into the holy place, only priests could come in there. And then to the most holy place, only the high priest once a year could come in there. So there was limited access. And the big message was humans cannot just waltz into God's presence. 
both because of their own sinfulness and because of God's holiness. Our problem is that the talking priest animals have lost intimate fellowship with their creator. That's the problem in the story that we're living in. And again, I don't think modern people think that way, right? I think, I think a lot of modern people think there is probably some spiritual reality or there's a God, but uh, they certainly think they could waltz into God's presence. Well, God accepts everyone just the, the way they are. They have no sense that there's something tragically wrong with humanity. And, uh, you know, even if you don't necessarily like, you know, it's weird, these metals, the gold and silver and bronze that says we can't make access to God. Maybe that seems strange to us, but I think most of us feel what the tabernacle is trying to communicate. Like, even if you're a Christian, we often feel a sense that God feels distant. And where is he? I don't feel that intimate connection to him that I really want to have. And oftentimes we start thinking that that's because there's something wrong with God. You, you know, maybe we say, well, I don't even think God exists because I don't feel that he's close. Or we might think, you know, God is harsh and he just doesn't come near to me. And so I'm so, I'm angry with him because of that. But it doesn't occur to us, maybe God doesn't feel close because of our own spiritual poverty. Maybe I don't know how to be close to God. Maybe there's something not wrong with God, but something wrong with me. This is the problem that the Bible says is that the root of all of our other other problems is that we've been alienated from God. And so during an election year, as Christians, we must keep this in mind that while we all think carefully about how to bring justice and prosperity to our nation, that's work that the Bible says is important for Christians to do. We should be involved in that. We should be thinking about that. The thing that keeps us from making idols out of our political system or political leaders or an election is to realize that our deepest problem is a problem that politicians cannot solve. How can we be reconciled to God? That's our deepest question. And so it allows us to say that politics are important, but not the most important thing. Orders our loves, orders our priorities. But it also leads to our final question. So first we say, what's the meaning of the world? It's a, t- uh, it's a temple where humans are meant uh, to, to live with God and, and to create the world into a dwelling place where God would come dwell with us. And what is the, the problem with the world? That we have been estranged from our beautiful creator who made us. But lastly, what then is the solution for the world? And you might think, well, if our problem is that we're distant from God and we're sinful and we've estranged ourselves, we rebelled against him, then we better stop doing that and make ourselves not sinful and then go find God and have a relationship with him. Don't be estranged from him anymore. What's amazing about the Bible, the whole story of the Bible, is that while we were still sinners, while we were still broken, while we're still not who we were supposed to be, God came to us. And actually, the whole story of the tabernacle is the Israelites, they were still sinful like everyone else. And God says, I'm going to build a tent right in the midst of you, and I'm going to live with you. I'm going to come to you. And even more, you'll notice what it says there in verse 14. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. That's the rain fly that's on the outside of the tent. And someone mentioned this to me this week, that All the other Israelite tents would have been out of goat's hair. 
And so this tabernacle that's so intricate and beautiful and it's gold and glorious on the inside, on the outside looks like all the other tents. God came and looked like all the other people. Of course, as Christians, when we hear that, we say, what does that immediately make us think of? The greater tabernacle that came later when God came and dwelled among us in Jesus. And he looked like everyone else. People said, Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah? Don't we know him? He's just one of us. And yet there was a hidden glory within him. And yet Jesus was a new tabernacle that didn't have this gradation of, you know, bronze and silver and gold keeping people away from God's presence. We watch Jesus walking around touching lepers who are unclean. And we see, you know, prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners coming and eating with him. And they, there is a shocking nearness of God's presence. They have been welcomed in and he has made space for them. And it's because Jesus came into the world like that and he approached people and he cared for them and he welcomed them, it's because of that reason that we should care about justice and freedom in our nation. We should care about politics. We should care about protecting the unborn. We should work toward racial reconciliation. We must be in the world because he has come into the world. But the solution to the world is ultimately not us. And so, as the Bible repeatedly says, we don't put our trust in princes. The solution to the world is him. Is Jesus come from heaven to earth who's the ultimate tabernacle. He is the meaning of the world. And it is Jesus who by his blood has given us access to the presence of God. It is Jesus who put on the goat hair of human life and became like us. And it is in Jesus that we are restored to our original purpose as humans, as talking animal priests who live our lives for the glory of God. And so friends, you are living in a myth. Do not forget the myth that you are part of. And every myth is a story. Every story has a hero. And the hero of this story is our Savior. God come to dwell among us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, uh, we praise you that you have come to dwell among us, that you have not abandoned broken and sinful humanity. We are amazed that you have sought us out, that while we were still sinners, Christ came to die for the ungodly, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might know you and walk with you. And Lord, uh, we too long like all those who gathered to Jesus, the broken that he touched and he ate with, we too long to be touched by him, to eat with him, to feel that shocking nearness. And so grant it to us and, uh, and put our hope in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.